Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin a new 10-message series called The Word Became Flesh. So join us as we look into John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, with a message titled Jesus and the Created Universe. Let me tell you of the summer of my 18th year. I was struggling, genuinely struggling, with whether there really was a God. I had already concluded that the church was irrelevant to me, and, and all that was left was to come to terms with God. Did God exist, and would that make a difference? So one night, I decided to find out, once and for all. I drove my car to a secluded location in the country and turned the motor off. You know, in my mind's eye, I can still very vividly recall exactly where that was. And I still remember that night. It was one of those beautiful, clear summer nights. The stars were brilliant in the sky. The warm summer breeze was blowing. The crickets were chirping. And somehow, I was aware of all of it. I was there all alone in the dark. I had parked my car, and for a time, I sat in it. And for a time, I stood outside with my back resting up against the car. I really didn't want to be interrupted. I was going to make a request. God, if you exist, reveal yourself to me. Show yourself so I can settle the question. So I was quiet and I waited. I remember waiting for a considerable period of time in the dark and in the quietness. No God showed up, no answer. In the end of a long period of time, I remember getting back in the car and the interior light of the car like a jarring intrusion interrupting the beauty of that night. I turned the vehicle on, the motor sprang to life in a way that seemed to break the trance of the night sounds. I turned on the headlights, and with that, the beauty of the nature around me simply vanished, and, and I drove home. I was deeply disappointed. No God had showed up. It turns out I was alone. Now, as I said, that experience happened in my 18th year, and it's one of those experiences I'll never forget. It still seems so vivid, and the memory of that night has lingered with me. And I've reflected on several occasions as to the meaning of that night. For one, I so vividly remember the breathtaking grandeur of nature, creation, the handiwork of God all around me. I remember leaving that place deeply disappointed and thinking there was no God. And the irony of that night has not escaped me. All the works of God were alive around me. They were shouting. They were singing. They were rejoicing with adoration to their creator. And there was I, blind to their testimony, deaf to the sound, and ignorant to what I was seeing. And David, you will remember, had a very different encounter than mine. He wrote, and I quote Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Or think of the words recorded in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now that is but one small part of the folly I exhibited that night. Another part of the folly is something that, that Job understood quite well. In Job chapter 9, verse 19, Job says, If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Well, indeed, Job had in mind the idea of summoning God to give an account for why he was suffering. But put that matter aside. Think of the utter arrogance I was displaying that night. Standing before the grandeur of the God of creation, there I was summoning the Almighty. 
I was making a demand. I demanded you prove yourself to me. And to this day, I marvel that in due season, God did reveal himself to me. It is to me the most astonishing thing of all. But added to this was the fact that I had a Bible. And not that I understood or knew it well. I mean, truth be known, even though I was raised in church, I hadn't shown the inclination to understand the message of that book. At 18, I couldn't have told you who Abraham was or the significance of his life, never mind the overall message of the Bible. Nor had I shown any interest in discovering whether it contained a message I should consider. God had taken the initiative within real history to leave a written record of his self-disclosure to the human race. Well, that was of little interest to me. No, I wanted God on my terms, not his. And as I now think about that moment in my life, I, I now see myself as a young man filled with arrogance, lifting up my voice to inconceivable majesty and saying, God, unless you speak to me in a way that I, a mere mortal, demand of you, I'm going to conclude that, that you don't exist. I can now almost imagine God looking at me and calling the angels and saying, hey, watch this guy. <laughs> I now love the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the first 11 chapters in the Bible, the chapters that reveal the God of creation. God created all that exists and not only created, but also assigned each item in creation its meaning, its purpose. The sun, the moon, the stars not only exist in their grandeur and complexity, they are signs to mark days and seasons and years for us here on earth and therefore give meaning to the passing of time. God also created us, the crown of his creation, infused with the breath of God made in his image. But humanity revolted, led a rebellion, a revolution against heaven and against God, and declared our independence from God. And this not only led to alienation from God, but also introduced us to a fundamental change in our humanity. The Bible says that our thoughts were on wickedness all the time. The wickedness led to a time in world history when great warriors ruled the earth. A, a great struggle ensued between the city of God and the city of man, and the godly line was almost extinguished. Then came Judgment Day, a great universal flood that destroyed all humanity with the exception of one family. But God in his mercy devised a way of dividing the nations so that a super society of evil would no longer dominate the planet. But was that it? Was God merely content to keep human evil in check? Well, absolutely not. God was determined to elect a group of people who would fill the earth with his glory. God would never relinquish his hold on the creation. The creation would always belong to the Creator. A long time later, many, many, many years after God created the earth, a man named John, an eyewitness of Jesus, was to write down his memories of what he had seen for, for those three years that he followed Jesus. How would he begin? Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written about the life of Jesus. Mark began his book by starting the story beginning with the public ministry of Jesus. Later on, Matthew would begin the story of Jesus with an angel coming to a virgin and announcing a miraculous birth. Luke begins the story even further back. An angel came to a man named Zechariah announcing that he and his aged wife will have a son. And this boy will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so when John, the disciple and eyewitness of Jesus, writes, the other three accounts have already been written. People have read them. How then would John begin? Should he start with Jesus' public ministry or should he start with the stories surrounding his birth? See, John chose neither approach. 
not because he rejected such an approach, but, but in his day, both of these approaches had already been explored. They were there to be examined. I mean, they were there in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. No, John would add something that the other three had not yet written. The Holy Spirit was guiding him to add one more feature to the story of Jesus that must be added. And so John begins his book, the Gospel of John, in a shocking way. In the beginning, he writes. That's how John's story of the life of Jesus begins, with the words, in the beginning. That's the way the Bible begins when it tells the story of creation. The beginning are words in the Bible that tell us we're at the beginning of the story of God and his creation. No, no, not the beginning of God, but the beginning of God's story as he designs and fashions and shapes the world that he has made. And the beginning takes us back to the beginning of the world and also to the beginning of man's place in the order of the world. But the beginning John has in mind is not creation. It's a beginning before that. John says, if I'm going to describe to you what I saw when I saw Jesus, I have to begin by telling of the time before there was a world, before there was a universe, indeed, before there were angels. In order to tell the story of Jesus, we need to go to the time of eternity past, the time when there was the only one solitary God. That, of course, is remarkable. It leads to the most important of all questions. If in order to understand the story of Jesus, you have to go back to eternity past, who then is Jesus? And since today, I'm beginning a two-week series that deals with Christmas, the birth of Christ. John's account, if you've never heard it before, is altogether stunning. For John knows that you can't speak of the shepherds and the wise men and Herod's rage, or for that matter, you can't even talk about all of the Old Testament prophets about the Messiah without also talking about something that takes us back to a time when nothing, but nothing existed, but the one solitary God whose being is eternal, and that's his John, is where the account of Jesus originates. That is truly the beginning of Christmas. Recently, I sat down with friends Mark and Corey. Their testimony of faith and reliance upon God is inspiring. You can listen to the entire interview at backtothebible.ca. But today I wanted to share just a few words of their encouragement. When we see a ministry like Back to the Bible Canada that's had such a profound impact on our lives as a couple and family, we just want to lean in and return the blessing. I may never be on radio teaching, but what we can do is give. We can give our part, just a little something we can be involved with and invest in eternal things. We're so grateful for Mark and Corey and many others who choose to invest in Back to the Bible. Our prayer is that you would do likewise. Help us finish this year well and begin 2018 ready to do even more. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let me ask a rather searching question. Does it matter that when we speak about the birth of Jesus that we can't properly tell the story until we draw it back to some time period, you know, a time period we might call eternity past? Now, the reason I raise this is because we're living in a day when so many things outside of the question of God and, and the identity of Jesus seem to matter. 
I've spoken to elderly people who tell me that they never think about death or about God. It doesn't seem to matter to them. I mean, politics matter in this country, in the U.S., our neighbors, and geo-global politics surely matter. Science matters. History matters. Education matters. Your health matters. Making a living, well, that matters. Your family matters. Finding and giving love matters. Justice matters. Happiness, fulfillment matters. So does having accomplishments. But John begins by saying that Jesus is at the center and is the creator of everything that matters. You'll never understand life creation or happiness or history or science until you understand Jesus. If you tell the story of Jesus the right way, well, you've got to tell the story of everything. I think it is true to say that we know more about the universe than any generation before us, but we don't know what it's for. We know more about life and the building blocks of life than any generation before. We just don't know what life is for. You know, our society is long on knowledge, short on wisdom. John says, if you miss Jesus, you'll never understand either the nature of life and what life is for. If, says John, I'm going to tell you about the birth of Jesus, I'll have to tell you the story of the created universe. So for these next two weeks, I want to take us on an adventure of discovery. I want to take us into the discovery of what it means that on a night some 2,000 years ago, group of shepherds heard angels telling them, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So let's begin. I'm reading John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so John begins his account of the birth of Jesus with the identity of Jesus. He says, in the beginning was not the world, not matter, but the Word. Now, you and I know that he is referring to Jesus, but but he doesn't say in the beginning was Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word. You see, back in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it tells us how God did that. God said, let there be light, and suddenly there's an explosion of light. I mean, imagine that moment. The book of Job tells us that the angels watched. See, I'm reading Job chapter 38, verses 4 to 7, which is a part of God's question to Job concerning Job's arrogance. God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Angels who are here called the sons of God are, are according to Hebrews 1 verse 14, ministering spirits. That's to say, angels are not physical, material beings. They're spiritual beings. And that's to say, until the first words were uttered, that is, the first words that brought nature into being, no nature had ever existed. And what the angels saw when nature sprang into being caused them to spontaneously shout when they saw it. It was so beautiful and indescribable, this ocean of physical reality. God merely spoke the universe into existence. It was his word, his, his speech that caused physical matter to be. 
And John is saying that word, that utterance of God, that's what I have to talk about when I tell you the story of Jesus. The Old Testament contains a lot of material about the speech of God. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. But there is more to the speech of God than that. God says in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to be empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. See, the speech of God is not like ours. See, once in a while, I'll listen to talk radio, and, and after a while, I shut it off thinking, you know, words, words, words. See, whenever will we get fed up with this bluster of meaningless hot air, which we use to entertain ourselves? I mean, listen to major U.S. news stations, and they have panels of political pundits sometimes interrupting each other and arguing and going over the same events ad nauseum until they fill all silences with their ever-present sounding words doesn't mean anything. And I get the sense that those who argue for one thing could just as soon argue for the exact opposite without missing a beat. They speak and they speak and they speak and nothing comes of it. But the speech of God is different. His very utterance creates an effect every time. It's an expression of God himself with all his power, his wisdom, his glory, his being, so much so that you can't separate the speech of God from God himself. Listen to how David describes that in Psalm 29, verses 3 to 9. He says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry, glory. Well, says John, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about Jesus. He is the word of God. He's the speech of God. You, you can't talk about the word and God without realizing that you can never separate God from his word. And therefore, at the very outset, John wants us to know that Jesus shares fully in God's eternity or in, or in God's eternal being. Never was a time when Jesus did not exist. To argue that, as some do, that Jesus is a created being is like arguing that God was at one time mute and unable to speak. <laughs> but if that were so, we might as well argue that at some point in time there was no God or God was not God. No, God's nature and his being, his glory and his speech are eternal things. God could always speak, and Jesus, because he is the word of God, therefore shares in God's eternity. There never has been a time when there was nothing, but there was a time when all that existed was this eternal being who is God. And since God was always God, the speech of God was always there. And so, says John, there never has been a time when Jesus did not exist, for he, he is the speech of God, the word of God. And furthermore, John's gospel also add that since Jesus is the word of God, 
Therefore, Jesus is the self-expression of God. I mean, think of it this way. You know, when people talk, they're expressing themselves. I know they, they may be talking about something else. It might be sports, politics, science, relationships. But in the middle of that speech, they're expressing something that is inseparable to who they are. In the same way, says John, Jesus is the self-expression of God. He is the Word of God. He perfectly expresses who God is. The writer of Hebrews states the same thing, recorded in Hebrews 1 verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Jesus is the express identity of God. See, when Hebrew says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, please notice the remarkable difference between saying this and saying that Jesus is the reflection of God's glory. The moon that gives light at night doesn't radiate its own light. It's a reflection of the light of the sun. But Jesus is not like that. He's not the reflection of the glory of God. Instead, he is the radiance itself. He is the very essence of the thing. Ah, there it is. God, the great creator. God, the one before whom David stood and marveled when he considered the work of his hands. That the very heavens declare the glory of God is a thing to be marveled at. And yet, says John, when we think of what happened when Jesus was born, we must think of creation and God speaking the universe into being. And then we must think that this speech of God was found clothed in human flesh. This is the Christmas story. John, I love this. I love this getting into the book of John as we think about Christmas because we always talk about the, the little baby and all these types of things, but what we're talking about is so immense. We're talking about God here. Yeah, you know, God is the great creator. You can't look at anything in the world without seeing the handiwork of God. And therefore, there is something greater than all that exists, and it is this child lying in a manger. This is the greatest story that can be told. I mean, this is God come to us. This is his creative word entering into the human family. I mean, there is no greater story than this, and I, I think that reading John's gospel is a great way to celebrate the Christmas story. It reminds us that, that this is the story of everything. Thanks so much, John, and continue to be with us as we study the book of John during this great Christmas season over the next few weeks. Back to the Bible Canada, well, we teach the Bible. If you were to ask, what is Back to the Bible Canada all about? The answer would be, we teach the Bible. For 60 years, it's been our purpose, mission, our focus for all we do, and what people expect. Brian wrote, Back to the Bible Canada has transformed my walk with God. Elisa, some use caffeine to start their day. I prefer Back to the Bible Canada. It helps me to remember God's character and promises. It helps me to make wise kingdom choices in a very distracting world. And Tyler wrote, thank you for all you do. Your messages help me in my walk, discovering God's purpose in my life. Would you help us continue to teach the Bible? Your gift by December 31st would help us reach our year-end goal of $400,000, positioning us well for 2018. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.